Good morning. It is super great to be with you this morning. I'm uh, going to move this right here, Bill. All right. Um, my name is Ken Kuhn. I'm the family ministry director here at Bethany Eastside. And I am really excited to jump into our sermon series today. As we started last week, we're starting to talk about these little, um, little books in the Bible uh, but we're going, but they're called big shorts because they have they have a lot to tell us. Um, but before we jump in this morning, uh, will you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, Lord, we are so thankful to gather here this morning as a community. God, we pray, Lord, that as we gather in community, your Spirit would also be in community with us here. God, we pray that as we receive these words this morning, that they would. Come into our hearts, transform our hearts, transform our minds, that we may look more like your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> so, as a senior in high school, I faced one of the most difficult decisions of my entire life, at least up until that point. The decision was this, Biola University or Seattle Pacific University? And I'm sure that you're thinking to yourself, that's a very difficult converse. That's a very difficult decision to make because on one side, oh yeah, elementary kids, you can leave. <laughs> um, on one side, we're talking about sunshine. On the other side, we're talking about rain. Yet on one side, we're talking about pollution. And on the other side, we're talking about clear air. We're talking about oceans. We're talking about mountains. And it's a decision I couldn't make. Like many high school seniors, I had sent many applications out with this prayer, dear God, please have me accepted to one school with one financial aid package, with one set of scholarships, so that I may know your will for my life. Thank you, amen. And of course, many acceptance letters came back, and it came down to two nearly identical acceptance letter and financial aid packages and scholarship package, and it was Biola or Seattle Pacific. And the question became, how do I make this decision? Well, I was in high school, I also attended uh, this men's group that my dad was a part of. And there were a couple of men that were my dad's age in their 40s, and the rest of them were, let's just say, wiser. And the wiser men among that turned out to be some of my heroes. And as I participated in this men's group over the course of different summers, I had grown closer to these men, these men had grown closer to me. And so to this panel of men who I trusted so dearly, I went during my Christmas break of my senior year, and I said, I'm in a predicament. Is it Biola University or Seattle Pacific University? And of course, they all had their opinions, and so we talked about that. And then finally, one of them said to me, uh, look, let's, let's just pray for you. Let's pray for you. And it was this, turned out to be this really amazing, affirming, and commissioning time. But as the last phrases of the prayer dissipated, there was no clue in sight as to which the decision should be. And so I got to the end of that, and I was like, wow, that was really powerful. I still have no idea what I'm supposed to do. God, what is the one place that you're calling me towards? And this man came up to me. His name's Larry, and Larry is one of these men that you just know knows Jesus. Have you experienced somebody like that? And so Larry came up to me, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, Kenny, I need to tell you something. I have a word from you from the Lord. I was like, okay, Larry, lay it on me. He said, you're not going to like this. And I'm like, great. And he looks at me and he says, Kenny, 
You're a young man who's following after the heart of God. You're obedient and you're asking all the right questions, but the word that God has for you this morning is, well, frankly, I don't think he cares where you go to school. <laughs> and I was flabbergasted. What? Larry, God has a plan for my life. Well, yes, he does. But then he told me this. He said, look, the important thing to remember is that God is with you, God will go before you, and God will be in the place that you end up. Whether it's Seattle or Los Angeles, God will go with you. God's given you a decision to make. And no matter which one you choose, God will be there for you. As you may imagine, I did choose Seattle Pacific University, which has brought me here today. But I often think about how big of a decision that was in my life and how different my life would probably be if I would have chosen Los Angeles instead of Seattle. But the important point is this, and the prophetic word of Larry was, no matter where I go, God would be there, and God had a plan for my life, and God would have helped me be fruitful in that place in the same way that I would have been fruitful in Seattle. So we're talking about the prophetic this morning. The book of Joel is a, is a book of pro prophecy from the Old Testament. It falls in the last part of the Old Testament in the section of the Bible that we call the Minor Prophets. There are 12 books in the Minor Prophets. And positioning of the Minor Prophets is really interesting. The majority of these books start off with an introduction that introduces a king or introduces kind of like a, a time frame. I like to think of it as like a historical or theological timestamp. And the way in which the Bible was canonized, the way it was put together, put them chronologically in order in our Bible. Except the unique part about Joel is it doesn't have a historical or theological timestamp. No king is mentioned, there is no date mentioned. And as I was kind of perusing some of the scholars on the book of Joel this week, one of them mentioned this, the placement of Joel is important because it's supposed to be read canonically instead of chronologically. Sometimes we look at these books historically and we think they inform us and tell us about who Israel was and what they were facing. But when we think about it canonically, we're talking about the fact that what is presented in the book is informing the way we read what comes before it and what comes after it. Joel is the second book in the Minor Prophets. And similarly, it is the second uh, sermon that we're giving in the sermon series, and I think it tells us something very important about two different things. First, it tells us the way in which we're supposed to be informed and to talk about the rest of the minor prophets, and also it informs and introduces the way we are supposed to come and interpret and understand the rest of the sermons in this series. Joel is going to play a key role to the way that we go about talking about these big shorts this summer. So Joel, he's a prophet. What does that mean? Now, I know for many of us, the problem seems to be that we hear the word prophet, and we're kind of uncomfortable with that a little bit. We think of like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. These are men that were called, and their white hot embers are put in their mouth, and they speak forward the word of the Lord. And honestly, at least some of the experience that I've had in the church is that we talk about them in this like doomsayer-esque fashion. There's doom and there's gloom. Well, the truth is, that's not the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet is not to speak doom and gloom. The role of the prophet is to speak hope in these places of doom and gloom. You see, there's Old, Old Testament prophets that we're pretty familiar with, but even in the New Testament, we see examples of people pointing towards prophecy, 
Paul, one of Paul's favorite gifts to talk about in the New Testament is the gift of prophecy because Paul says this. In the book of 1 Corinthians 14.3, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. When Larry spoke into my life, he spoke encouraging words, strengthening words, and comforting words. This is the role of the prophet. So as we go forward, church, let's think of prophets in this positive connotation. Another way to think about this, uh, one of the fellow pastors at Bethany said this week, the prophetic brings encouragement. The prophetic allows the hearer a comfort to knowing that God sees them, hears them, and is moving towards us. This is the word this morning. We haven't even jumped into Joel yet, and this is what you need to hear, that God is for you, that God sees you, and that God hears you. But as we jump into Joel this morning, we're going to see that that strengthening and that encouraging sometimes looks like a correction. Sometimes to be strengthened as a community of God, we have to be corrected. We need to be critiqued. We need to be challenged. And so that's what Joel is going to bring us today. As we come to understand the role of the prophet in Joel today, we come to understand that the first thing a prophet does is it points to the places in our lives that do not look like how God desires for them to be. When our lives don't look like the way God intends for them, this is where the prophet likes to show up and point at. The second thing that we'll see is there's promise in this, though, because the prophet in Joel asks us to see those places and turn away from them and back to God. And once we turn back to God, here's the promise. God restores. God restores. This is the promise of Joel. This is the promise that we're going to take forward this week. That it's not too late. It's never too late. No matter what that thing is in our lives, God will restore it. So as we go into Joel, we're going to do so by talking about kind of three key words. Uh, two words are the actions of the believers or the community of Christ or the Israelites. And the third word is expressly the responsibility of God. Those words are lament, orient, and restore. So let's jump in at the top, talk about lament. I'm reading from the book of Joel, uh, chapter 1, if you want to follow along, starting in verse 2. Hear this, O elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Verse four, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. We'll pause there. Something's come in the form of the locusts in the life of the Israelites. And if you remember, you might remember a story from Exodus where there was a plague sent on the Egyptians so that Pharaoh's heart would turn and would allow God's people to go. The locusts represent this problem in the society, a place where there is injustice, a place where there is dissidence, a place where there is sin. This is a place that the prophet is calling us to, re to realize that something is not as God intended it to be. And so here's the response. Verse 5, wake up. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, over the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. 
For it is as a nation that has invaded my land, powerful and innumerable. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vines and splintered my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches have turned white. At the top of this, wake up, O drunkards, and weep, for the wine has been cut off. What we see all the way throughout scripture is that wine is a metaphor, a picture, a symbol of benefit for the entire community. For instance, we just got done talking about Song of Songs. That was our last sermon series. And the woman in Song of Songs loved her beloved more than she loved wine. Love was greater than the second best thing that she can think of is wine. In the story of Noah in Genesis, we, we know this one, right? The, the family and the animals get on the ark. The ark floats for 40 days, 40 nights, and then it lands, and the rainbow comes out. And God gives thanks, or Noah gives thanks to God for the promise of the rainbow, which is that God will not do this again. And what is the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the boat? Plants a vineyard. In the New Testament, John 2, Jesus goes to a wedding. He goes without a gift, but he brings a gift. And the gift that he brings is turning water into wine. Here's the key. Here's the key. Wine is synonymous with fruitfulness in the Bible. Wine is synonymous with fruitfulness. And if you don't know anything about locusts, there's these little bugs, and over the course of their lives, they can travel up to 3,000 miles, and they devour everything, everything. The problem for the Israelites is that they are fruitless. For the ground is mourning, the crops are gone. The locusts have laid waste. Locusts have not laid waste, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. Cutting, swarming, hopping, destroying. These are different types of locusts. And yet there's a problem. The problem is that Israel isn't aware of their problem. They're not bearing fruit. They're fruitless. And Joel is pointing to this as a sign. Joel says, look, something is not right. Where you had fruit, you no longer have fruit. That which was fruitful is now barren. I love that we're talking about fruitfulness uh, right now because as many of our parents in the room know, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit from January to June this year. And I hate to be punny, but it was a really fruitful experience for us and for our kids Our kids have learned so much. Most of our elementary kids can name the nine fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But furthermore, they can tell you that their, their fruit doesn't come from themselves. Their fruit comes from the Spirit within them. And furthermore, at the beginning and the end, we talked about the fact that just like fruit comes from the branches of a tree that have received its nutrients and has grown into what it is. We too are connected. John 15, right? This is the story where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And those who abide in me bear much fruit. Bear much fruit. Those who abide bear fruit. And yet those who are cut off are fruitless. Israel finds themselves in a place where they are no longer abiding in God. So what does the prophet do? The prophet calls them 
to lament. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin dressed in sackcloth. For the husband of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The fields are devastated. The ground mourns. The grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil fails. Israel, there is trouble. Do you see it? The word for lament in the Hebrew here is sephad. Sephad is a two-part definition, has a two-part definition. The first is simply to mourn. To mourn. When there is something that doesn't look like God, look, doesn't look like what God has intended, the response is to see that thing and to mourn it. To understand that there's a problem, to see the sign, the prophet's pointing, are we hearing? Do you see the places that the locusts have come? Do you see the places where you might feel fruitlessness, where you might feel barren? We mourn the places in our lives that don't look like what God has for us, where there's death, where there's addiction, where there's sin, where there's brokenness, where there's injustice. These are the places in the world that don't look like what God has for us. And this is what the prophet's pointing at and saying, lament, your call is to lament and mourn the things that don't look like God. Our first word this morning is lament. Our second word this morning is orient. The interesting thing about the word lament is that it has uh, the two-part definition. The first part is to mourn, but the second part of the definition is literally the rending of one's clothes. We see this all throughout the Old Testament when the word lament comes up. They mourned and rent their clothes. This is actually the same word when you go and you translate and do some you know, theology nerdiness. There's only one word in the Hebrew, but it's translated to mourn and to rend one's clothes. And the reason for this is because the action of seeing, identifying, and mourning that which isn't like what God desires for us is tied to an action. It is, only, it is not only mourning, but it is moving. It is turning back towards God, reorienting ourselves back to God. Uh, uh, Dr. Sung Chan Ra is a scholar who's worked a lot with, uh, with lament. He's a seminary professor at North Park Seminary in Chicago. And he uh, has this definition for lament. He says, lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that good God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. Lament is seeing the suffering and engaging God in that suffering. It's seeing the distance between what God has for us and the way that we're living our life, pointing at it, and having a response to it. The response is to mourn that which isn't right, to see the things in our world, to see the things in our country, to see the things in our city, to see the things inside of us that don't look like as God desires them to be, the places where it's broken, the places where there needs to be reconciliation, the places where there's injustice that, that we need to stand against as the church, to see those, to mourn them, and to move. In other words, when we lament, we are giving an outward sign of what's, going, what's happening inwardly in our hearts. 
And you may have heard of this language before because this is how we often talk about baptism. As a church, we come together and we celebrate the baptism of an individual who has chosen to die to themselves and to accept new life in Christ. We come together to witness this outward sign of an inward change for two reasons. First, we do baptism so the community remembers that they've made this promise. They've made the promise to say no to the things that God doesn't desire for them and yes to the things that God does desire for them. And it's a reminder to all of us who have made that promise together before. But the second reason that we do this, we do baptism communally is because it takes a community to continue to die to oneself and to step into new life. See, when I say that, we need to lament and turn back towards God. That is a communal we, not a singular we. Dr. Ra has something to say on this as well. He writes, Lament is honesty before God and each other. If something has truly been declared dead, there is no use in sugarcoating that reality. When we know the places of suffering in our lives, when we see the places of brokenness, not living into those, stepping into them, or declaring them dead is sugarcoating. And to hide from suffering and death would be an act of denial. He goes on to say, if an individual would deny the reality of death during a funeral... Friends would justifiably express concern over the mental health of that individual. In the same way, should we not be concerned over a church that lives in denial over the reality of death in our midst? Church, we talked about this a little bit in the Song of Songs, but that it's our job as a community to stand with one another as we come face to face with the places where we experience fruitlessness. In our hyper-individualistic culture, we're encouraged to step away from those around us, to not be super involved because it's my car that takes me to my work, that then takes me home to my house so I can relax in my yard that's fenced in by my fence so nobody can take away my privacy or my security. But that's not the call. The call is to all of Israel. The call is to all of God's people to step in to the reorienting of one another back towards God. The second observation that I have on Orient this morning is one that comes to us from the chapter of uh, Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is how it reads. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. As we talked about that original definition of of lamenting has to do with rending one's clothes. And, but the critique here from Joel is don't rend your clothes, rend your hearts. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we're actually pretty good at rending our clothes and not our hearts metaphorically. Again and again, we step into a place where we're invited into community and asked, how are things going for you? And our response is often, fine, doing well, work's busy. See, the problem that Israel's having and the problem that we have in our own lives is that we're not willing to enter into these hard places. We have become apathetic to the places in our lives that are no longer bearing fruit. And when we're not willing to share those with others, 
if we're not willing to mourn them, if we're not willing to turn away from them, then God can't do anything about them because we don't want God to. Uh, last month, we met as a leadership advisory team, and we invited some new leadership t- uh, members onto the team, and it was a really great time. We had a lot of fun. And as, um, and as we kind of introduced one another, we invited the new members on our team to take the StrengthsFinder 2.0 personality test. Uh, if you don't know it, it's a personality um, test similar to Myers-Briggs, but what it does is it asks you all these questions, and it gives you your top five strengths. And it's been about four years since I've taken that test. And so we were sitting in that room and we're talking about everybody's strengths. And I was like, oh man, I I really need to look my strengths up again. I I don't remember them. I sat down and I started looking through them. And the first one is input, which just means that I love taking in a bunch of information. I was like, yep, that's me. And then uh, the second one is relator. It means that I like to be in relationships with other people. And I was like, yep, that's me. And then the third one took me aback. My breath was caught in my chest, and my heart began to break as I realized that I hadn't felt my third strength in a long time. You see, my third strength is positivity. I tend to be a person that enters into a new situation and sees the silver lining. I tend to be the person that affirms and encourages and gets behind others. And you may have even had experiences with me where you can say, no, Ken, I've seen positivity in your life. I felt encouraged, affirmed by you. But I know that that's me rending my clothes and not my heart. Because if I'm completely honest with you, when I think of the fruit of the Spirit, I can say yes to the fruit of love, but I cannot say yes to the fruit of joy. And often I can't say yes to the fruit of peace. At times, I don't see joy in my life. At times, I don't see peace in my life. And this comes out of a place of understanding myself, or I've come to a place of understanding in myself that too often I'm given a choice. I'm given the choice to see places in my life where I should be turning towards God and receiving joy and receiving peace, and instead I turn in towards myself. And I think about all of the school that I have to do and all of the work that I have to do. I think about trying to keep up with the relationships with my friends that I don't really have time with but really mean a lot to me and trying to be a good husband. And I hold all this intention. The response that I have is, I can do it. I can do it. I will not fail. But inside, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to fail. I worry all the time. And I cancel things with people because I'm worried about getting enough work done and I struggle, and all this weight I allow for myself to carry on my shoulders. And in light of that, I haven't felt joy, and I haven't felt peace, and I don't in these times. Church, this was a place of barrenness in my life, and as I've started to confront this this week, it's been painful. Because as Dr. Ross said, it's being honest before God and before each other, and honesty is tricky right? And yet, there's good news, right? And here is the promise. Here is the hope. Here is the reason that Joel is the reason that we are, helps us interpret the way that we're supposed to read the rest of the prophets, helps us interpret the way that we are supposed to step into the rest of this series. There is still time, is the word of Joel, 
there is still time. Because if we are willing to lament the places in our lives that look like sin or barrenness or foulness, places where the locusts have come and started to eat away at places that had been previously been fruitful, places where God has created us to be a certain way and we have turned away from that, here's the promise. Lament, mourn, rend your heart, and point it back to Christ. If, it's a, if there is a problem, it's a heart issue. And if it's a heart issue, we have to deal with the heart. And as we read in chapter 12, or in chapter 2, verse 12, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. There's nothing other than turning towards God that is happening in that, in that verse. It's not the plan that you can come up with to, to fix it. It's not uh, trying to pray it away. It's not uh, making sure that you're doing all the right things. It's not that you need to read your Bible more. No, no. <clears throat> Listen carefully. When there are places in our lives that don't look like what God has for us, what God intends, what God desires, we need to mourn those places understand them, see them as signs of brokenness and barrenness. And all we need to do is turn towards Christ and bring those things to Christ. For it is only through Christ that these things can be restored. That's the promise. That's the promise of Joel. That's the promise that we read in our scripture reading today. I'll read it again for you now. Chapter 2, verse 21. Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. There will once again be fruitfulness. A little bit later, verse 27, Joel says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God. Yet again, another promise, except this one has come to fruition. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel is the promise, the foretelling, and the um, coming to fruition of Jesus Christ coming and being with us. This is the promise of the incarnate God. And because of the life, the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the promise of restoration. And finally, in verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Another promise that has come to fruition that leads to the fruit. See, a life well lived is measured not in wealth, not in friends, not, in a, not things that we have, but it's measured in the fruit, in the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of our relationships. There's one more promise, and that promise is in chapter 2, verse 32, and it's this, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the work of the prophet, to point at the things in our lives that do not look like God desires for them and to direct us in those moments back to God. Because when we go to God with the places that lay fallow, the places that are broken, the places that are barren, the places we experience addiction, the hardships that we have in marriage, 
the disappointment we can't get over, the injustice we see in our lives and in our community and our world, when we take those things to God, God is in the business of restoration. God is in the business of reconciliation. So the question for us this morning, church, is will we be different because of God's restorative work? Will we choose to stand together to seek the places in our lives that are broken, the places that are barren, and to stand together and say, no, that is not what God desires for us. That's not what God desires for you. It's time to turn back. I love the fact that we're going to be celebrating uh, communion this morning um, because the Lord's Supper is the most beautiful picture of God's fruitfulness. For it was through the work, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have the promise of restoration, right? The promise of fruitfulness for Jesus the last, at the Last Supper, the night before he was crucified, gave the bread and gave the cup, poured them out for the world, and said, this is my life and my body, my blood, given for you. Go and be fruitful, is what's being said. But before we partake in communion today, I ask that you would take a moment I ask that you would take a moment to understand that we're being called to lament. We're being called to mourn the places in our life, in our community, in our world that don't look like what God has, what God intended. But the beautiful part in the midst of this is there is hope. It's not too late. It's never too late for God to restore. For the work of the prophet is to encourage, to strengthen, and to comfort And sometimes that happens through critique, and sometimes that happens through challenge. But I promise you this. If you lament and mourn the places that are broken, and you turn with those places back towards God, God will restore those places. This is the hope that we find in Joel. This is the hope that is found truly in the body of Jesus Christ. So church, are there places that the locusts have slowly eaten away and left places of barrenness in your life? Are there places that were once fruitful, now lay fruitless? I pray that you would look for these places. I pray that you would lament of those places, and then that you would reorient yourself towards Christ, and then come. Once you've lamented, once you've oriented yourself to Christ, come to the table and let the body and blood of Jesus Christ restore you. Amen.